2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Acadia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were, utter, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves. Oh, dear friends, I'm going to just start that sentence over because it's so important. But that was to make us rely not on, to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raised the dead, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that, we, that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. To be honest, every, I don't know about every pastor, but there is a, a temptation, maybe is the right word, a desire, maybe um, an un, uh, uh, maybe a, a desire to avoid when you're preaching and you know you've got to preach a passage that's not easy to hear or pleasant to hear, there's just a part of you that would long for something easier. So it would be nice if all I ever had to say to you is that your grass is going to be green, sun's going to shine, your kids are going to turn out right, there's always going to be money in your bank account, and you're always going to feel great every morning when you wake up. And that'd be a nice thing to proclaim. But the reality of it is, friends, because we live in a world that is under the curse of sin and is corrupted and corrupting, there is going to be suffering and brokenness in your life in this world. There is absolutely no way to avoid it. And so Paul, as he's writing to the Corinthians, he addresses the reality of his personal suffering and the suffering of the church. When I was a young man and I was uh, sensing God's call into ministry, what I imagined ministry to be like would be, I, in my mind's eye, I thought ministry would be like um, the goodness, the glory, the fun, the excitement, the blessing of being off at church camp. Now, I don't know if you remember church camp as kids, but weren't they good days? 
I mean, there's just something sweet, special, precious about getting away from your, from your regular activities, giving your full attention for, for, for days on end to the Word of God and, and, and the worship of God and, and being around other people who are doing it. And so if you've ever experienced that, you know there's a, there's a, there's a joy connected to summer camp. And I, as a young man thinking about serving in the church and, and ministry, I thought that must be similar to what church will be like serving the church because what do I, who do I work around all day long but people who claim to know Jesus, amen? And, 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 I, and I, I preach and I study God's word. That sounds a lot like what the, the joyful wonder of a, a, a summer camp will be like. And so it must be the easiest, most blessed job in the world to pastor a church, amen? And what I discovered was that that was not true. In fact, one of the realities of pastoring a church is because you are preaching the gospel, you're confronting people in their sin, that oftentimes you're not dealing with the pleasantries, you're dealing with the difficulties. Sometimes people who are dealing with sin and don't want it to be exposed will bite and bark. And those are always some, some difficult moments indeed. And that, that with that reality comes some suffering that, that's not as pleasant. And I, I was looking at some stats of the day and pandemic's been pretty tough on pastors. And, and, I, and, and so just the, the, uh, the, 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 the Stepping away from ministry, reality is pretty, pretty heavy and pretty high right now for a lot of pastors being weary and, 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 and broken. And I think in part of that just comes from the spiritual suffering, the reality of living and dealing in a, in a broken world. But the reality is no matter what you do in this life, you will have suffering. Now, there's some, there's some things we need to, to articulate before we start. First of all, we need to define what is true suffering. So um, sometimes we, we attribute unfair suffering to things that we actually brought on ourselves. So if you get on the interstate and you drive 300 miles an hour and you get a ticket and you are complaining about the cost of that ticket, that's not suffering that was un, that undo you. That's, that's suffering that you brought upon yourself because of your own wickedness. But the reality of it is all of us will know suffering that's just part of living in a fallen world. So some of you woke up this morning and parts of your body hurt for no apparent reason. Do I have an Amen. I hear groans. I'll take that, okay? There's a reality that if you live long enough, your body will begin to not work as it is intended to work. And that, there's some real suffering to that. Some of, that's more, some of it's soreness. Some of it's real debilitating pain. That's suffering. Uh, there, there's, there, there's suffering that's part of living in a fallen world. And so there are, there's wickedness and there's hostilities that comes from, from, from a world that loves sin more than righteousness. If you, if you stand for the gospel, friends, the reality of it is that in your, you may have a, a consequence in your, in your profession. Looking into the future, we're seeing some real troubling signs. There may be some professions in the future that Christians who are living under a biblical worldview cannot and will, will not be able to participate in because their, their conscience and their, their righteousness will be offended by what is demanded to them in those professions. That's suffering. And then, of course, just... Just the, just the brokenness of a world that has hurricanes and tornadoes and those sort of things. A right relationship with suffering is to understand that it is, suffering is part of living in a fallen world. And secondly, that its purpose is to draw us, our attention toward the glory of God. Now, it's unpleasant. Every affliction, every suffering is. And we tend to do all we can to avoid it. And when we do experience suffering, we attempt to minimize at least the knowledge of it to others. And so the common thing around here is if somebody asks you if you're all right and you're really not all right, you say, oh, I'm fine. Thank you very much. We lie right through our teeth. We try to minimize our suffering. We, 
we try to make light of it. We're tempted to look at others sometimes who seem, seem like they don't have as much suffering in their lives. And, and, and we have this falsehood that if you, if you don't have much suffering, then you must be blessed of God. And if you have a lot of suffering, there must be something that God is trying to bring upon you in discipline or something or in his displeasure. But friends, I want to tell you something. Listen to me carefully. Now, there are some sufferings that you bring upon yourself because of your sin. You speed down the interstate, you get a ticket. That's not, that's not the world being unfair to you. That's you living outside of the law and, and suffering the consequences of it. But beyond those things, the reality of it is some of you will know more suffering than others. Some of you will know more physical suffering than others. Some of you will live to, to, your, to your last day of life and, and be healthy and feel good and praise God for that. But others of you, even as young people, will begin to experience some health difficulties. Some of you will have careers that are easy and you're able to be promoted and, and, and it doesn't conflict with your faith and the righteousness of God. And others of you are going to have some consequential realities in your work because of your walk with the Lord. Suffering is just part of this world. It's not necessarily an, an act of God's displeasure and, or is the lack of suffering um, necessarily a blessing? I think we'll hear that later today. Paul opens his letter to the Corinthian church with an honest word about suffering. Now, we don't know uh, the cause of Paul's suffering. We don't know the details about it. It may have been in Ephesus, but it apparently was, was well known to the, so well known to the church at Corinth that he didn't need to give any details. And so they knew what he was talking about, and so he references it without giving any details about it. And as he talks about his own suffering and how God is using that suffering to bless the church, I want us to see these things out of this passage. Number one... Start with the baseline foundation. Suffering is real. You can't avoid it. You can't get away from it. It is part of living in this world. Suffering is real, number two, but suffering prepares us for ministry. God is using and will use your suffering for his glory and for your ministry to others. And ultimately, suffering binds us together. It draws us together for the glory of the Lord. But let's begin with this idea that suffering is real. And so I would uh, just draw your attention to verse three and four where, where Paul says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of all of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul's not arguing whether or not the sufferings have... Um, um, are, are good or bad. He, he's, he's not talking about those who don't have it. In fact, he's assuming, he's making an assumption here that not, because he's going to talk about his suffering, but he's assuming that everybody in Corinth, everybody that reads this letter will have issues of affliction in their life. So suffering is real. The reality of comforting, the, uh, and, and, and it gives us the ability to, to bring comfort to the lostness of this world. When you confront the lostness of this world, it produces affliction and suffering in your life. Doing gospel work is to directly confront the darkness and the lostness of this world. Paul's, Paul's suffering in this passage is a direct result of him preaching the gospel and the world hating him for it. But he's recognizing that God is comfort him, comforting him in that affliction and God will comfort the church 
in their affliction as they do the same. Suffering is real. It's a real part of confronting the lostness of this world. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we read of Elijah's great success in opposing the, the, uh, the false prophets of Baal um, and, uh, and the, uh, confronting the false prophets of Baal. But the very next chapter, when Jezebel hears about what happened on Mount Carmel, she becomes angry. And, and it's one of the great contrasts of the Old Testament. So if you're familiar um, Elijah goes up on the mountain and is bold and brave and confronts the prophets, makes fun of them. There's, there, there's, some, there's some humor in how he makes fun of them. And he totally wipes them out by God's grace and by God's power, demonstrates who is the true God. The next chapter, Jezebel, the king's wife, is angry because he, he destroyed all of her prophets. And it says in chapter 19 of 1 Kings in verse 2, then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me, that's little g, may the gods do to me more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And do you know what the great prophet Elijah did after being on the mountain and seeing God bring down fire from heaven and having this great moment where one man destroyed hundreds of pagan prophets and after that, the reaction of one angry person sending a letter saying she's going to get him. You know what the great prophet did? The great prophet of God was afraid of her threat and ran away. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 3, it says, Then he was afraid and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. He, has, he, ha he was experiencing affliction, suffering, hostility, because he stood up for the glory of God. Here to the Corinthian church, Paul is proclaiming the hope of salvation uh, to a world in the, in the darkness of sin. And the forces of evil will not go without a fight. And as a result, Paul had known many afflictions and sufferings, and he was recognizing that the church there at Corinth would likewise know many afflictions and sufferings. And he doesn't hide or make excuses for his suffering. Paul recognizes it as a part of serving Jesus. That's why he says in verse 5, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. In other words, that's just part of serving the Lord and living in a broken world. All those who follow Christ must count the cost and recognize that suffering will most likely be part of the offering we bring. Now, can I just say to you something? If you do not have the, the view of glory as your hope, the sufferings for Jesus will be too much. If you do not have the hope of glory as your hope, the sufferings of Jesus will be too much. I believe many have walked away from the faith because when the sufferings came, they said it's too much. But it was too much because they did not have the view of glory to come. Dear friends, there's no amount of suffering we'll know this side of heaven that'll compare to the glory we'll know on that side of heaven. Somebody say amen. So suffer for Jesus gladly. Suffering is often in this side of heaven, greater than our strength. Look at verse eight. Paul's talking about what he had experienced and he says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. Paul 
was talking about the intensity of his affliction, and he was saying either they thought they were going to die or they wished they could die because it was so difficult. That's pretty bad. Saying in verse 8 that he had despaired even of his life. Friends, what is honored among men is personal strength, personal determination. Paul clearly says that these afflictions were so great that they far exhausted his ability to overcome them or even face them. Now, the modern church does not speak much of suffering, at least suffering. We don't, we don't speak much of at least suffering on, on a result of serving, for the result of serving Jesus. And I don't have any data for this, but I wonder if this is because we are so tied to our own ability and strength that we seldom have ever go or do what, we can only, what can only be done in the strength of the Lord. If you go and are used in areas that can only be accomplished in the strength of the Lord, you will be quickly confronted with realities that are far beyond your ability and strength. God calls us to go beyond our safety zones. God calls us to give more than we are comfortable with. God calls us to do more than we thought possible. God calls us to preach and to suffer more than we thought possible for his glory. Paul shares this not to brag about his ability. In other words, he's not, he didn't tell the story like this, man, it was hard, but we bucked up and showed up and, and, and all the pagans backed down. No, what Paul is not bragging about it in his own strength. He's, he's, he's sharing this to testify to the power of God and his weakness and how God's power was demonstrated in his weakness. The reality of suffering is oftentimes it draws us. It is greater than um, our strength and our ability, but it draws us to recognize that even in our weakest moment, God is great and able still, especially in those moments of weakness. And to that we would say, and I want to say to you right now, dear friends, God is able to provide. Now, listen to me. I, there are two kinds of folks here. Some of you are right now in the midst of deep, bitter suffering, and some of you will soon know deep, bitter suffering. I mean, that's just the reality of the world. Now, if you're, if you're not experiencing deep, bitter suffering today, hear this, file it away. It won't mean much to you right now. But if you are right now experiencing bitter suffering, in other words, it's consuming everything you're thinking about. It's coloring everything that you see and do. Listen to me carefully. God is able to provide for you. Get the second part of verse 9. Paul says, but this was to make us, oh, underline this one in your Bible, highlight it, circle it, come back to it often. Paul's talking about this suffering that, that brought him to the point where he despaired of life itself. Some of you haven't been there, but some of you have. Maybe, maybe you wouldn't admit it, but the, the suffering is so bitter, so heavy, so great, that even life is unpleasant to live. And Paul says of this, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. In other words, there's nothing God can't do. He can raise the dead. And even in the greatness of our suffering, we came to recognize that God was able in that moment. And then he goes on to say, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. Oh, praise God. 
God is able to raise the dead. And God is able to provide for those who are suffering. There are two two dimensions of Paul's hope, both present and future. Presently, God is able to deliver. God is able to sustain. To deliver you from your enemies. To deliver you from your hardships. To deliver you from spiritual attacks. And to deliver you from physical um, uh, uh, opposition. But he's also able to sustain you in those moments as well. So it's to sustain you when your enemies bring an attack. To sustain you from the hardsh- when the hardships of this world are overwhelming. To sustain you from spiritual attacks or even physical opposition from the world. God is able to do that presently. But, but thinking in the future, Paul recognizes that the ultimate deliverance is not from the momentary afflictions of this world, God has already delivered us from sin and death through Jesus. God will deliver us even yet when Jesus returns. Here's the dynamic. Listen, don't miss this. If all you think about is future, then you may despair in the present. So if you're in the midst of great suffering, somebody pats you on the back and says, don't worry, God's, Jesus is coming again. Everything's going to be all right. You may receive that. And that is true. But you might say, but, but that doesn't help me in this moment. And yet, if all you think about is the present, then, dear friends, you will despair indeed because at some point, even present helps will will not be enough to take away the bitterness of suffering. you got to have both. So Paul is looking to the future as he recognizes the present. So he knows God is, in fact, he says, God has delivered us. God has delivered us. Praise God. There is no force on this side of heaven that is greater than the glory of our God. There's no enemy. There's no attack. There's no disease. There's no nothing this side of heaven that our God is not able to deliver us from. Praise God for that. But the hope that we have in the present deliverance of God doesn't come from from the present things. It comes from the future things. God has raised the dead, and he will return to receive us to his glory where everything this side of heaven that is not of his glory will be conquered forever and ever and ever again. I mean, when we read the end of Revelation where the Bible talks about there will be no more tears, there will be no more sadness because death will be no more, that's the ultimate in God bringing victory over the sufferings of this world. The future does not diminish or ignore our present sufferings. The future hope gives an eternal perspective of our present sufferings. The hope of glory gives comfort that our present afflictions will come to an end and will be well worth the effort. Did you listen? Did you hear that? The hope of glory gives comfort that our present afflictions will come to an end. They won't last forever and they will be well worth the effort. Suffering is real. But they will come to an end, and they are well worth the effort. Number two, suffering prepares you for ministry. Paul talks about experiencing the comfort of Christ in verses 3, 4, and 5, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. 
we begin with experiencing the comfort of Christ. When there are no comforts in this world, you must find rest in Jesus. Listen to me carefully here. I fear that the North American church is sinking under the weight of our comforts. This is what I mean by that. If you pay attention to generations past, they sang about, they preached about, they wrote about the hope of heaven a lot because their present experience was filled with many difficulties. If you read old letters, 100, 200 years ago, you'll notice that most letters begin with asking, is cousin so-and-so all right? Is so-and-so all right? Because when you left for a long journey, oftentimes when you return, folks had gotten sick and died and you hadn't heard about it. So when you wrote a letter, just wanted to see, are all my kin folks, are all my loved ones still doing well? Are they still living? Has something terrible befallen them? The old folks used to talk about sick unto death because oftentimes when you got sick, it was sick unto death. Now, we don't experience that today. Today, so much, such longing for heaven is considerably, considerably muted compared to generations that came before because we experience so many of the comforts that worldly wealth can afford. Now, here's the expectation. The expectation today is if you get sick, there's a pill or a procedure that'll fix it. We get frustrated when there's not a pill or procedure that can fix it. The, the, the experience today is if there is an unpleasant reality of the elements, that somehow we can overcome it. If I were to tell you that the air conditioning broke in the sanctuary and it wasn't going to be fixed for six months, would you still come at the heat of July? Would I still come in the heat of July and preach? Or the coldness of those two days in the winter that we have in South Georgia? The comforts of this world are no comparison to the comforts of Jesus. Listen to me carefully. Our wealth and our technology has allowed us amazing comfort. I'm not complaining about it. I'm thankful we are in an air-conditioned building on padded pews with electric lights. I'm thankful that most of us didn't have to walk here today. We rode here today. Some of you brought multiple cars. If you have a family of drivers with teenage drivers, you brought every car that you own. Amen. This morning you got ready and you cooked your breakfast, not on a wood stove, but, but on a, an electric stove or a gas stove in your home. Indoor plumbing. Aren't you thankful for that? Praise God for that. My granddad used to say, you know, he thought he carried enough water to float a battleship as a young boy. And he, would, he would often say, don't tell me about the good old days. He said, I lived them. <laughs> he said, I don't want to go back to them. Oh, we're so thankful for the comforts and ease that our comforts have brought us. But at what cost? The comforts of this world are no comparison to the comforts of Jesus. The difficult truth is that unless you know the sufferings of this world, you cannot know the greatness of the comforts of Jesus. Here's where I think many of us are. I think many of us have settled for the comforts of this world but if you settle for the comforts of this world, you will miss the glory and the comforts of Jesus. And friends, my word to you is desire the comforts of Jesus in the sufferings of this world 
rather than reject the comforts of Jesus so that you can have the comforts of this world. Sufferings prepare us for ministry first and that we experience the comfort of Christ. Secondly, that it creates compassion for others. Look at verse 6. He says, if we are afflicted, it is for our comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. One of the byproducts of suffering is that it makes you compassionate toward others. You ever notice that you're more sensitive to those things that um, you have yourself experienced? And maybe a little um, uncompassionate to those things that you've not ever struggled with. Experiencing suffering prepares your heart to minister to others who are suffering. I've experienced this in my own life in that those things that I have experienced personally, when I, when I interact with others who've known them, I, I tend to be much bent toward compassion toward them. And those areas in my life that I've not known any difficulty in, I tend to be a little more harsh, a little, a little less sympathetic, a lot less compassionate. When God brings a little suffering in your life, it is in part preparing you to minister to others who will know that suffering. And I think ultimately it draws us to understand that we are totally dependent upon Jesus. Anyone who dares to serve the Lord must do so in the power of Jesus alone. Now that's what Paul says. We've already mentioned this in verses 9 and 10. He makes clear that God is able. In verse 9, in contrast to verse 8, he makes clear that we are not for, uh, that we are not, uh, for the Lord. If it were not for the Lord's help, we would all be ultimately lost. In verse 8, Paul says that it was so bad that they dis despaired even of life, meaning that they found life itself too burdensome to live. So much so that in verse 9, Paul says that they did not trust themselves. The trust was not in themselves, but only in the power of God. Suffering had a defining, had a clarifying reality in their life that it, that it, that it made clear that they were totally dependent upon Jesus. And friends, I believe this is where anyone who wishes to be used by God must be. There are some amazing things that you and I can accomplish on our own. But if we wish to be used for the glory of God, we must be about those things that only Jesus can accomplish. And if we're, able to, if we're, if we're willing to do those things, then suffering prepares us for that in that it, it demonstrates to us over and over and over again that we are ultimately and totally dependent upon Jesus. That we'd be able to say, not by my might, but only by your might, O Lord, do you accomplish such great things. One other thing, and that is that suffering binds us together. Look at the very last part, verse 11. So in verse 10, Paul gives great praise that God delivered uh, him from such deadly peril and that he will deliver us, looking toward the future of the, uh, of the glory to come. On him we have set our hope he will deliver us again. Verse 11, he says, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the great, for the blessing granted us through the prayer of many. Paul wants to help. He wants help from the church. And he wants help from the church 
Not that the the Corinthians would gather up a a group of folks that would come and defend him or fight on his behalf or or attack the enemies that attacked Paul or, or whatever it was physically that was causing such distress in Paul's life. No, Paul says, this is the help that I need from you, church. I need your help in that you would pray for me. Now, two things about prayer. Three things. First of all, often in prayer, we see that as, a, as something to do when nothing else is to be done, and we don't recognize it as the great labor that it is. Oh, dear friends, the, the, the power of the church is found in prayer. So here are the two things about prayer. Number one, we, when we pray, we witness the power of prayer, ultimately the power of God, and we bring a testimony to God. So let me show you these two things. So the witness of the power of prayer. So in verse 11, Paul recognizes, uh, verse 11 recognizes that Paul was helped by the prayers of the Corinthians, the, church, the, the Christians there in Corinth. When we pray for one another, it draws our attention to the purpose and the workings of God. So instead of worrying about what what Paul physically was dealing with, the praying for Paul was was drawing the church's attention to, what are you doing, God, in his suffering? It draws our attention to the purposes and workings of God. It focuses our attention on who can help. The help was not going to come from the Corinth church. The help was not going to come from the Roman government. Help was going to come from God himself. And so the the, the petitions and the prayer were focused to the one who could help. It focuses our attention on who can help, and it unites us together in the work and the will of God. How could the Corinth church work and participate in the ministry of Paul? Paul says, the way you help me, the way you participate with me, is pray for me that God would be glorified in what I'm doing. Praying for one another is motivated out of an understanding that we serve one God, one gospel, one hope, and one calling to make Jesus known. When, we're, when one part of the kingdom is suffering, all the kingdom suffers. We should pray for the missionary on the, si- on the other side of the world. We should pray for the church around the corner. We should pray for the brother or sister on the other end of our aisle. When we join in praying for one another, we become witnesses to how God is working, delivering, rescuing, and moving. I don't don't have the time to belabor this, but I'll just tell you, friends, if you want to see the power of God, I don't think you can see it by any other way than being on your knees in prayer. That's the only place I've ever seen the power of God truly move. Because my attention has been given to the glory of God and, and I'm beseeching him for his help. And that's when I see him work and move. Witness the power of prayer and secondly, become a testimony to God. When we pray, we bear a living testimony that our hope is in God alone. Friends, who you turn to when you're in trouble testifies to who you believe can really help. When we pray, we bear a living testimony that our hope is in God alone. Prayer is a testimony to God's power, not that the one who prays has any power, but that the God to whom we call on has the power and ability to do all things. The effectiveness of the church and those who serve the Lord is dependent on the faithfulness of the church to pray. Seeing suffering from a perspective of God's goodness and sovereignty affects how you respond when suffering comes. 
You may not recognize this name, but there's a man by the name of William Carey, and he lived in the late 1700s to the early 1800s and was part of the early missionary movement. He began his life as a cobbler. And that was probably the trajectory that his family thought he was going to take, but he apparently was just brilliant. And his brilliance was manifested mostly in his ability in languages. So even as he was um, apprenticing to learn the skill of being a cobbler, he was, he was reading books and studying language and, and self-teaching himself, Greek and Hebrew and the biblical languages and then, and then others. Eventually he would sense God's call to uh, to, to the mission field and would go. And if you know anything about Carrie's life, you know that um, uh, his life as a missionary was full. I mean, just full of heart-wrenching, gut-churning suffering. But the part that selfishly I identify the most was something that happened in 1812. I said he was a gifted linguist, and so much of his effort when he got to uh, India was to, to work in, um, in languages. Now, these are, these are days when the Bible was not translated into the native tongue, and so he was working on um, developing uh, um, alphabets, grammar books, and dictionaries. So, you know, those translation dictionaries. And um, and, had, and, had, and had for about five or six languages developed alphabets, had developed a dictionary for them, and had begun, in fact, had completed uh, two or three translations, or first translations of Scripture into, uh, into the native languages. And um, the, the missionary agency that he was a part of had a warehouse and was beginning to print them. And um, they were very excited. It represented about... 14, depending on how you calculate it, 12 to 14 years of labor, hard labor of developing uh, um, dictionaries, languages, translation work, and those sort of things. On March the 11th of that year, Kerry traveled from his home uh, to Calcutta, about 20 miles to the south. And while he was away, about 6 p.m. at night, a fire broke out in the printing office. Accounts of it said that by midnight the roof caved in and it was reported that a great column of fire shot aloft to the sky and continued for some time as steady as the flame of a candle. Inside the burning building were 14 Eastern languages, 1,200 reams of paper and many copies of scripture ready for distribution. And the most valuable of all, it contained Carrie's original manuscripts of, uh, of with which there were no other copies. You know, today, my sermons are stored in the cloud. And so if the building burns down, hopefully I can get them again. But in Carrie's day, all he had was the original manuscripts, and they all were completely destroyed. They were able to save a few of the, um, of the deeds to the buildings and some other things like that, but all of Carrie's work, including some of the the typesets for the, um, for, the, for the languages either melted or were completely destroyed. When, they, when they, they caught up with Carrie and told him the news, 
He was so stunned that for a long time he could not even speak a word. The reason why I say this is just most, it strikes me the most. Just imagine your life work on paper, all being consumed by fire and it all being gone. 14 years of labor, study, nothing to show for it. Carrie returned home that evening and the other missionaries immediately took up the task of rebuilding and recreating what was lost. He wrote a letter to Andrew Fuller about it and he wrote these words. He says, as traveling a road the second time, however painful it may be, is, unusual, is usually done with greater ease and certainly uh, and certainty than that when, it was, uh, when we traveled it from the first time. So I trust the work will lose nothing in real value, nor will, the, will, will be much retarded by this distressing event, for we shall begin printing the moment the types are prepared. The ground must be labored over again, but we are not discouraged. Indeed, the work is already begun again in every language. We are cast down, but not in despair. I believe a, a fire that destroys your life's work is indeed suffering. Many might be tempted in such a moment to buckle under the weight of such suffering and quit. Others might be tempted to feel as though their labor had been wasted. God, I did all of this for you and there's nothing but ash. Carrie understood that nothing that is given to God is ever wasted. Nothing that is given to God is ever wasted. Friends, a life given to God, if, even if it is lived in obscurity and never known, that's not waste. Suffering for Jesus in a context where no one will ever be aware of it, is not waste. Losing everything to fire that you have labored for for Jesus is not waste because nothing that is given to the Lord is wasted. Carrie trusted that God was working even, though, even through the destruction of the flames. His suffering was absolutely real. You and I can appreciate the heartbreak and utter despair that he must have felt when he heard the news that all that he had done and everything that he had accomplished had come to nothing but ash and rubble. His suffering was great, but even still, God was working through it for his glory. As news spread about what was lost to fire, contributions and other helps began to pour in. Now, I don't have any proof of this, but it may be that because of the attention that the fire brought to his work, that he was able to do more than he would have ever been able to do if he had not had the fire. Kerry was able to do much more. Before his death in 1834, the mission had printed all or part of the Bible in 44 languages and dialects. Friends, suffering is never welcomed. But in God's sovereignty, God can use it for his glory 
and our blessing. So if you suffer today, suffer for Jesus. Let God's sovereignty permeate everything about your suffering. If you suffer today, suffer with a view for eternity. God is able to provide and deliver you now, but he will deliver you in, in the second coming. Suffering is real. There is no way to avoid it. It's never welcomed, but in God's sovereignty, he can and he will use it for his glory. And he can and he will use it for your blessing. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.